Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, uh, thank you so much for the opportunity as men to gather and to, to get into your word. Lord, we thank you for the book of Joshua. We thank you for how Joshua points us to Jesus. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. Open our eyes, God, to, so that we may see the wonderful things that you have for us in your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. What does it mean to be a spiritual leader? Does it mean that you have to have your life all together? Does it mean that you have to have a lot of charisma in your personality? That you must be able to speak before large groups? Does it mean that you have to be a Christian for a certain amount of time and then you get promoted? Does it mean that you have to be discipled by some great person? or that you must attend some great church, or that you must have a track record of, of massive success. None of those things, really. But there is one thing that you need, that you absolutely need if you want to be a spiritual leader. Somehow, there has to be a very close and consistent link between you and God's Word. Amen. The Word of God, you must possess a passion for the Scriptures. And when you do, that will be communicated, and it will impact the people in your sphere of influence. People will discover your love for Christ, and they'll discover your love for this book. One of the most important verses in the book of Joshua is Joshua 1.8. This book of the law... For us, it's the whole Bible shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. The navigators have this like famous illustration they call the hand illustration, and it, and it describes the five different ways that we can take the scriptures into our lives. First is we can we can hear the scriptures. So we can go to church on Sunday morning, we hear somebody speak the scriptures, and then the second finger is you read the scriptures. And the third, your middle finger is you study the scriptures. The pointer finger is that you memorize the scriptures. But the key to getting a real grasp on God's word is the thumb, which is to meditate on the scriptures. Because if you think about trying to hold your Bible without your thumb, how easily somebody could come and just take it away, steal it. And think about how many Christians, all they do is they hear the word of God. So you can hardly balance a Bible on your pinky finger. But if we, if we meditate on the scriptures and let them sink deeply into our heart, nobody can take it away from us. So we need to have a, a grasp of the scriptures. Well, why do we make such a big deal about studying every book of the Bible? It's because the whole Bible is about Jesus. It's his story. In fact, we believe that all of history is his story. And if we're looking at the Bible through spiritual eyes as true believers, we just might see Jesus on every page. So this morning, what I want to do with the book of Joshua is I want us to see seven ways we see Jesus in Joshua. But before we do that, I have some quick background information. Joshua was a man of many identities. He was born a slave in Egypt. He was a spy. He was one of the 12 spies that went into the promised land. And only he and Caleb came back with a positive report. He was Moses' servant. He was an experienced soldier. And he became Moses' successor. 
Joshua's name means Jehovah is salvation. And in Greek, his name means Jesus. One could outline the book of Joshua like this. Chapters 1 through 12, the conquest of Canaan. Chapters 13 to 21, the division of the land. Chapters 22 to 24, Joshua's farewell addresses and his death. The parallel book for the book of Joshua in the New Testament is Ephesians. See, for us as followers of Jesus, it's not about physical warfare. What we need to think about and be concerned about is spiritual warfare. We're going to learn today that Joshua faced walls of stone when he was fighting Jericho, trying to defeat Jericho. But there are other walls. For you and I, it's walls of bitterness or unforgiveness, walls of habitual sin, Walls of unyielding mediocrity, walls of self, self-centeredness, self-sufficiency, self-dependence, strongholds that keep believers from being mighty warriors for God, strongholds that keep others from seeing the gospel. We have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We must never lose sight of the fact that even though we know who wins the war, that we are in a great spiritual battles right now for the hearts and souls of countless millions and millions of lives. Keeping this in mind will help us get more out of the book of Joshua. So let's dive in and read chapter one. Could I ask Big Dan to read Joshua chapter 1? All right, Joshua 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot. As I promised Moses, your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river of the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean, the sea in the West. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Through the camp and tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the command that the Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you after he said, the Lord your God will give you rest by giving you this land. Your wives, your children, and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan. But all your fighting men ready for battle must cross over ahead of your fellow Israelites. You are to help them until the Lord gives them rest, as he has done for you, and until they too have taken possession of the land the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back and occupy your own land, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan towards the sunrise. Then they answered Joshua, wherever you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against you, word against your word and does not obey it whatever you may command him death only be strong and courageous thanks big dan so what i wanted you to notice in this chapter is three times 
Joshua is admonished to be strong and courageous. And I thought a lot about this this week, three times. And I've come to the conclusion that the reason is because Joshua didn't feel strong and courageous. I think he felt the opposite. I think he felt weak and fearful. Now, why would he feel that way? He felt that way after Moses died. I mean, Moses was his leader, his mentor, perhaps even his discipler. But you and I know that Moses was even more than that. Moses was so close to God that he had to wear a veil over his face after he met with him. It's the only person in scripture that he was like that. Can you imagine? Imagine being his friend and going and visiting him and he's got a veil on his face. I'd want to like peek under it. Like, you know, what did his face look like? But it's hard to think about how Joshua felt after Moses died. But I think he felt scared. I think he felt weak and fearful. But you know what? He chose to walk by faith, not in fear. And Joshua, like Jesus, chose to follow God's law. Joshua is a great example of how to live a life of faith and obedience to the Lord. Embedded in the historical narratives are some of the aspects of Joshua's experience that hint at the person and work of Jesus. Throughout the book, God tells Joshua to dedicate himself to the law of the Lord, not departing from it to the right or the left, meditating on it and practicing its, its precepts. He's promised military success if he obeys the law of the Lord. In a greater way, Jesus perfectly kept the law, delighting to live out the Lord's law. It was his bread. It was his food. It was his very purpose and mission. And if Joshua led well by following the Lord and his word, how much more will Jesus lead us? He's the only one who perfectly obeyed the will of his father. And so the first way we see Jesus in the book of Joshua is as a leader who follows God's law. Now let's move on to chapter two. Ray, could I ask you to read chapter two? Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had just laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies laid down for the night, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, or what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. 
Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived was part of the city wall. Now she said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on your way. The men said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land, you have tied the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and your mother, your brothers and all your family into your house. If anyone goes outside your house into the street, his blood will be on his own head. We will not be responsible. As for anyone who is in the house with you, his blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you have made us swear. Agreed, she replied, let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then as the two men started back, they went down out of the hills, forded the river and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Thank you. Thank you, Ray. I think I just set a record. I think I made Ray read the longest passage ever in this study. I just, I, this morning I was thinking, how can I cut some of this out? But I, I couldn't, I couldn't figure out verses to cut out because it's just so, so amazing. So good. In this chapter, Joshua sends spies to Jericho. And, and by the way, the diagram behind me, it's about a 15-minute journey that these two spies went across the Jordan over to Jericho. Jericho is also known as the city of palm trees. It, it had a great climate, and it's, it, was, it sits about 800 feet below sea level because it's near the Dead Sea. It was most likely one of the oldest fortified cities in the world with walls that were six foot thick and towers 12 feet high over the walls. But this story of Rahab is amazing. I mean, notice that Joshua didn't send 12 spies. He only sent two. <laughs> Why? I mean, maybe it was just because 12 would be too easy to identify and, and, and get captured. But maybe it was related to only two spies had, had a good report the last time spies went out. But these two guys decide the best way to find out what the people in Jericho are thinking is to approach a prostitute. Pretty clever idea there. Luckily for them, they found the one that would help them be successful in their mission. Rahab lies and risks her life to save their lives. And they, in turn, promise to save everyone who remains in her house when they attack Jericho. So how does Jesus show up here? Well, Joshua honors the two spies' request to save Rahab and her family, so we see Joshua, like Jesus, as a deliverer who rescues sinners. I mean, it would have been natural for Joshua to forget about or overlook the promise of protection made to Rahab during the battle for Jericho. But Joshua keeps the promise by having the spies whom Rahab saved become her saviors. So in Joshua chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, it says, but to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had, who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father, mother, brothers, and all who belonged to her. 
Her promiscuous work does not prevent Joshua from saving Rahab. In Joshua chapter 6, verse 25, it says, But Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. Rahab was undeserving of God's mercy, yet she and her family were delivered by Joshua. And that points us to Jesus, because Jesus offers salvation to the undeserving, doesn't he? I mean, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, about Christ's mercy to us, that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Or someone might die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one might even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So like Joshua, Jesus brings salvation to those whose lives and actions neither earned nor deserved such deliverance. Okay, let's jump forward to chapter 5, and I promise you the scripture reading will be shorter. Those first two chapters, I just couldn't cut things out. I tried, I thought about it, and I, but I, I just, they're just so good. And in a, in a, in a few minutes here, I'll, I'll open the floor for your comments and questions. But in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 to 15, there's this amazing passage, and it's right before Joshua's ready to conquer Jericho. It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, or neither, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. I love this passage because here's Joshua. He is ready for war. He is confident. He was prepared. He was like in the zone. And then he has this strange encounter with another warrior. And Joshua says, are you for us or for our enemies? And I love the answer. Neither. But I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Wait a minute. Isn't he on Joshua's side? Well, it seems like this warrior is telling Joshua that Joshua was asking the wrong question. It's not, are you for us or for our enemies? It's, are you fighting for God or against God? Are you fighting for God or against God? Are you on God's side? So there's a lot of controversy. Who is this warrior that Joshua comes in contact with? Well, he can't be an angel because angels won't let you worship them. It must be the incarnate Christ. Where else in the Bible do you see someone who told you to take off their sandals because the place you were standing was holy? Moses, right? Same thing happened to Moses when he said, you know, when he encountered God in the, the burning bush. So here we see Joshua and Jesus as warriors who are ready to conquer their enemies. And it's, you know, this picture of, of Jesus as a warrior, you know, you don't really see it much in the, you don't see it at all in the Gospels, but you do see it in Revelation. You see this picture of Jesus as this mighty warrior. So Joshua is often remembered as a warrior, a conqueror who destroyed the Canaanite armies. Jesus is also presented as a conquering warrior at times in the New Testament, especially regarding the spiritual realm. So in 1 John 3, verse 8, it says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. At the cross, God the Father Colossians 2, verse 15, disarm the rulers and authorities of the angelic world and put them to open shame by triumphing over them through the cross. 
Jesus defeated death through his death and resurrection so that we can say with the Apostle Paul, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Joshua, like Jesus, is a warrior who conquers his enemies. This is a good place for me to pause and see if there's anybody wants to make any comments or questions. Yeah, right. Going back to Rahab, in Matthew, we read, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. She is part of the genealogy of Jesus. Yeah, it's amazing. So to follow up on Ray's point, it isn't that Jesus loved us while we were yet sinners. Within his genealogy, there are sinners. When he puts on human flesh, he takes on all the frailties of humankind. Mm. Other comments or thoughts? Jim, did you have a comment too? like that this whole scene too about uh the, the lord of hosts showing up right and and you know joshua says who are you and we really would have expected him to say well i'm here to help you right i'm here to help israel conquer you know jericho and i think he does right because these walls fall down right afterwards it's not because they march around it, right, and create some sort of earthquake, right? So something goes on there. But I like the fact that he doesn't identify necessarily with Israel. Because if you kind of take your lens and go way out, there's something bigger happening than just Israel conquering the land. And, you know, in the Old Testament, God was using Israel to reveal himself to the world. In the New Testament, he uses the gospel and the church. But Israel was God's instrument. He was God's plan. And, and God wasn't involved just because he loved Israel. Because right, right there in chapter 4 at the end, he tells Joshua why he was doing all these miracles uh, through his lifetime. And he says, I've done this so that all peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. And so, yeah, Jesus has a bigger plan than just reaching Israel, right? It's reaching the world. He's going to do it through Israel until they become too unfaithful for him to use, and he has to discipline them. But that's the biggest, that, that's the take the lens way out, you know, the, the, the whatever that, that, that software program is, Google Planet Earth, it will go way out. You know, and you see God's plans is for the whole world. And in and, and, and Genesis, it starts back there. I'll bless you, Abraham. So all the families of the earth will be blessed, right? So his big picture includes me even back then. You know, it includes the Gentiles. So I'm grateful. And, and, and that scene there when the angel of the Lord says, I'm not necessarily just for you. I have a bigger mission. I come as captain of the Lord of hosts. Amen. All right, let's move forward. Uh, Rex, would you mind reading uh, Joshua chapter 6? We're going to jump forward to Joshua chapter 6, 1 to 7. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. Would you mind jumping forward to verses 15 to 21? 
On the seventh day, they rose early on the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourself from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Thank you, Rex. So I could have spent the whole morning just talking about military tactics found in the book of Joshua. But here we have this military tactic, march around the walls of Jericho seven days straight, which actually wasn't a um, unique tactic. The idea was to get them used to seeing you so they wouldn't expect a surprise attack. But here we see, following God's instructions, this armed contingent marched around the city of Jericho seven times. Now, we should mention that the weapons of the world for a scenario like this would have been battering rams, siege ramps, scaling ladders, but not here. The first weapon to be used in this new season of conquest was the unusual one. It was a ram's horn blown by seven priests in front of the altar. So these, these uh, diagrams show that they camped at Gilgal, and then that's where, they, that's where they were camped, and then they would go and march around the city for those seven days. Now, archaeologists such as this woman, Kathleen Kenyon, have discovered that the walls of Jericho fell outward, which would be unusual. Walls attacked by a siege army usually would have collapsed inward. But they've also confirmed that the city was destroyed by fire because they found pottery that was burned and lots of evidence of fire. Archaeologists also found full grain stores in the city. And over all antiquity, we would see that a siege like this would, would usually last for months. And in that case, there would be no grain left. But the fact that they found lots of grain supports the biblical account in a short seven-day siege. To this day, troops in Israel study the Old Testament, the Old Testament battles for military tactics. And it was interesting because when we were in Israel, we were supposed to go into Jericho. But when I was there last month, they wouldn't let us go into Jericho because there were some terrorists in, in the city of Jericho. So what did Jericho do? They blocked everybody from going in and out. They wouldn't let people out of Jericho. They wouldn't let people into Jericho. And they basically said, we're going to keep it like this until somebody turns over these terrorists. And that might have been learned from a tactic that was, we can see in 2 Samuel chapter 20, verse 21. It says, but a man from the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bitri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And then the woman said to Joab, behold, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. <laughs> so within a few hours... The re a resident of Jericho alerted the military of the suspected terrorists and where they lived, who they were, where they lived, and they quickly arrested him, and then the city was open again. I just found that interesting. I found it interesting that, the, that you know, they, they trained their military by studying the Old Testament battles.
Back to the ways we see Jesus and Joshua. So we've seen that Joshua is like Jesus as a leader who follows God's law, a deliverer who rescues sinners, a warrior who conquers his enemies. And here, when I think about this battle of Jericho, I see him as a victor who walked by faith. He followed God's instructions and trusted his plans to defeat Jericho rather than using conventional tactics of siege ramps and stuff like that. In the Gospels, we see Jesus as somebody who followed God's instructions and trusted his plans to defeat our ultimate enemies, sin and death. Okay, may I have a volunteer to read chapter 8? Let's move forward to chapter 8, verses 18 to 27. Okay, Ken. Then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who had fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city, and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai, they looked alive and brought them near to Joshua. When, when Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of A to destruction, only the livestock and the spoil that the city of Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. Okay, so Joshua's heart had been broken over the 36 of his men who lost their lives in the first battle of Ai due to Achan's sin, which uh, because Achan took, took things he everyone was told don't take any plunder in the battle of jericho but he did and that caused sin which affected their next battle what's interesting here is after they defeat i what are they told you can take the plunder so aiken if he just would have waited he would have been allowed to take as much plunder as he wanted but anyway so now, Joshua, what we see here is that he's praying, and he's praying, and God tells him to point his sword as you pray, and I will give you the victory. The thing is, he didn't just point his sword at, at I and pray, a quick mindless prayer like, oh, Lord, help us out here. Give us, give us quick victory. Amen. No, Joshua is told to hold up and point his sword and then keep pointing his sword and keep praying with passion until I is completely destroyed. Does that remind you of a story that we've heard in the past? Yeah, 40 years earlier, Moses, Joshua's leader and mentor, had sent Joshua out to attack the Am Amalekites. And while Joshua was fighting in the valley, what was Moses doing? He was holding up his staff, right? And as long as he hold, held up his staff, they won. But when his arm got tired, then they, they started losing. And so he actually had to have his brother Aaron and another guy hold up his arms until they completely won. Joshua learned that victory comes through prevailing prayer. And so Joshua holds up the sword, keeps pointing the sword and praying with passion. So here I see that uh, Joshua and Jesus are leaders who rely on the power of prayer. I mean, if you read the Gospels, how many times did Jesus withdraw to go pray with his father? How many times do we see Jesus praying? And if anybody didn't need to pray, <laughs> I mean, he was the son of God. He should have, you know, but, but he's often going and praying. Just a side note, I think like if, if you and I could experience regret when we get to heaven, which I think we won't, but if we could, 
I think we might regret that we didn't pray more. The founder of the Navigators was known to daily take a map of the world and he would plead and pray that for God to raise up laborers and disciple makers in every nation around the world. Prayer. It's just so easy for us to be self-sufficient and to try to do things instead of relying on, on God and, and, and being people of prayer. So that's what I see as the fifth thing. Now let's jump forward to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verses 7 to 14. Somebody volunteer to read? So Joshua went up from Gilgal. He and all the people of war with him and all the valiant warriors. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. And the Lord confronted them before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and pursued them by way of the ascent of Besharon, and struck them as far as Ezekah and Mecca. And it came about as they fled from before Israel. They were at the descent of Beth Haran, and the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekah, and they died there. There were more that died from the hailstones than those of whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ejelon. So the sun stood still. And the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar that the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day? And there was no day like that before it, nor after it, when the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. What a great, what a great uh, story. Joshua boldly asked God, almost he's, he's almost commanding God for more time, for more daylight to fight and defeat his enemies. He, he asked for this, a miracle, but it's a miracle that would ultimately glorify God. Jesus did countless miracles. None of them were for show. All of them were purposeful and done for the glory of God. So here we see that both Joshua is Joshua points us to Jesus as miracle, a miracle worker who works for the glory of God. Now, let's jump to the end of the book of Joshua and read along with me in Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 to 15. It says, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I had to put this passage in there. So, I mean, it's just a powerful I mean, we, uh, thing. But what we see here is Joshua, like Jesus, is a humble servant of the Lord. Joshua's epitaph recounts none of his victories or successes. It highlights his faithful service to the Lord. In this, we have a powerful picture of Jesus who said of himself that he came as a servant to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the ultimate servant of the Lord who perfectly kept the law and perfectly lives for the glory of the Father. But just a caveat here, because it's important to remember that Joshua is not Jesus. He's a type of Jesus, and he points us to Jesus, but he is not Christ. 
Joshua was a man with flaws, just like you and I. Now, it's difficult in the scriptures to find many places where we see his sin, where other people like Abraham, we see him lying. It's very difficult to point to places where, where Joshua sins, but I do think we can see some of his flaws. For example, he was deceived by the Gibeonites. The text says that he didn't consult the Lord. In, ch in chapter 9, verse 14, it says, So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So perhaps one of his flaws was this one time he forgot that he did not counsel the Lord when it came to the Gibeonites. Another time, I think, in my mind, that it appears that Joshua has failed, is he failed to replace himself. I mean, Moses passed the baton to Joshua. Wouldn't Joshua think as he's getting older and older, who am I going to place the baton? Who am I going to pass off leadership to? He didn't raise up a younger leader to take over for him, as Moses did. So with that, take more comments and questions. Yeah, up here, Dominic. Greg, you said Joshua, and good job, by the way. I enjoyed it. All the battles of Joshua and taking over Canaanite land was was very interesting and something I hadn't heard really before. So he was the he he didn't consult the Lord. So what was his downfall that the people came and they didn't want to be killed? So they brought old wineskins and food, and they were moldy and. I mean, just so they can live. I, was there a downfall for Joshua not consulting God at that point? Interesting thoughts. I think Joe Joe wants to make a comment related to your question here. Yeah, Dominic, Joshua was commanded to drive the people out because he was deceived and they made a truce or a treaty with the giving. He ends up having to go and fight for them and defend them. And they end up being a thorn in um, the Israelite side years later. So there was a price to pay for not obedient. Lou? What struck me is in uh, Joshua 21, verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to, the, to give to their fathers. They took possession of it and they settled there. And then... To, to make it clear, at 45, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So that's so, so very important. You see the faithfulness of God, how he had promised them all this land, and he gave it to them, and all the promises came through. God did his part. You know, it was part of his covenant, right? He did his part. And it's, a, it's an interesting thing to remember that. Because when we get into the New Testament, Jesus doesn't talk about the land promises at all. Okay, and there's nothing in the New Testament about that. And some people think that's a big issue in the millennial kingdom. But there it is right there in black and white. That God fulfilled his promises, his faithfulness. But I think that one of the most important points you brought up was meditating on the word. And I don't think we can stress that or emphasize that enough. Because I think that's what Jesus did. If you look at, there's very little about Jesus' early life, but except in Luke. But where was he? He was in the temple talking to the to all the leaders and teachers, right? And he knew the word of God. And when Satan tempted him, what came out? The book of the law, Deuteronomy, the word of God. And that's what we need to do. We need to meditate on the word. And I also thought Jim Love made a great point. Rahab and Ruth, the Moabitess, well, you know, they're, they're Gentiles in, yeah. in the line of, of Jesus. And, you know, it's for everyone. And, that, and that's what I think is so great, you know, about when you think about it, that, that God has that love for all men. You know, Jesus is the savior of all the world. And he's the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of all the world. And that's something. But, you know, the, for us, meditating in the first psalm, meditate on the word. The last psalm, worship. And that's where we need to go from meditating to worship. When I was 30 years old, I made a commitment to read through the Bible every year. 
by God's grace for the rest of my life. I'm 55 now. So I've read through the Bible at least 25 times. And I'll tell you, every time I read through it, I learn more and more. And you can never master this book because it's alive. That's a great segue to the two comments I want to make because it's two things I saw in this year's reading of Joshua. One, the conquest of Jericho. As you pointed out, first, Joshua sees the angel of the Lord, who is the pre-incarnate Jesus. And then the way the conquest goes, if you look at it, it's actually a victory parade before the victory has occurred. They go around with all the army and they're blowing the shofar and all this. It is the same imagery that Paul uses several times of we are victory in Christ. So you have that in just the conquest of Jericho because the victory is the Lord's. The second thing that jumped out at me this time was Achan's sin. It's like a parallel going back to Genesis chapter 31, where Rachel hides the household gods of Laban in the tent under her stuff. She's not discovered. She has committed a great sin of idolatry, but it is God's plan that she not be discovered yet. And then with Achan, it's also a form of idolatry. He would rather put his trust in this gold and silver and the booty from Jericho than following the command of the Lord. But he's taken out right now, which tells us that who are we to judge the mind of God? <laughs> Very good. Very good. Yeah, Rex. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned the Gibeonites. I think it's important, too, to realize that a few years later, and we're going to read about it soon, Saul tries to wipe them out. And then when David comes to power, the Gibeonites say, that, well, that's wrong. You guys made a deal with us. And uh, basically, Saul's family, except for his one son that David, the, the crippled son, gets wiped out because of it. So yeah. and, and I think they wanted to get the people out because they were going to poison the people. And we'll see in the next chapter that Israel falls very quickly into the same exact problems that were of that land that God would wanted wiped out of that land. So I think that's a big reason on the Gibeonites. But I think one thing that struck me was when he went to I or when they were going to destroy I, there was another time he didn't he didn't consult the Lord before that. He got an easy word. He sent people out. They said, oh, this town's small. We just destroyed Jericho. We just destroyed Jericho. Again, God destroyed Jericho. And it's clear from what you said there. But then when I comes, well, that's an easy kind of thing. Doesn't consult God. So 36 guys die. And then the heart of Israel is like melted. Oh, we can't do this anymore. And then he goes back to God. I think that happens in all our lives. You have big things where you're like, God, you pray and pray and pray. But then you forget about God when the little things come up and you don't he's sovereign over everything. And sometimes it's those little things that catch up to us. Amen. That's great. Yeah, we it's like a form of spiritual pride. And then, uh, yeah, he only sent 3000 men thinking, oh, we can take this easy. But yeah, yeah, that's good. That's really good. Thanks, Rex, for sharing that. Um, yeah. So I think going back to what Dominic said, as I think when you look at Joshua and you look at Moses and you look at obedience and you look at disobedience, and I think in Galatians when it says we reap what we sow, and I think both of those men reaped what they sow by not being obedient. And I think part of our love for God comes with our obedience. And that's our challenge for each and every one of us every single day. And like Rex says, the big things and the small things, God wants everything. And I think that's our challenge in the flesh because we're not going to be perfect with that, but we have to be consistent. Yeah. How many times have we gotten to Jesus saying, Hey, Lord, do this for me and I'll do this. <laughs> and we don't. That's true. <laughs> the word, and, and Jesus still loves us in our iniquities. That's great. Hey, Greg, I just wanted to talk, go back to the, uh, the commander of the Lord's army because when he tells Joshua that I'm not for you or for your or for your enemies, I'm for the Lord. It reminds me back in Deuteronomy 9 
when the Lord says he, to Israel, he, he says, I'm going to give this land, not because you're righteous, but because they're evil. Uh, I think it's an important thing for us to realize that when we feel like God's using us, we start getting full of ourselves. It's not because we're righteous, um, but it's because he's doing his work. Amen. I'm loving this. I'm loving I'm glad that I kind of ended a little bit early. So we have all this discussion. Any other final comments? We have room for maybe one or two more before we close. Go, Jim. You go, Jim. And So um, on the Gibeonites, I, there's a couple of very inspirational stories here that are uh, sort of granular. One is Caleb, right? You know, when Caleb is, Caleb is, was with Joshua and believing in God that they should go. And the other 10 said no. And his spirit comes out again in, I think it's chapter 10, where, where he says, when they're apportioning the land, look, uh, give me the land of the Anakin. Right. These were the giants. And he said, uh, perhaps the Lord will be with me. You know, such a spirit of trusting God. It wasn't a sure deal in his own mind, but give me something challenging. What what an encouragement that is. And, and then I, I was I was also very encouraged that um, in this uh, struggle where the I think it's the Amicalites or Amorites who are attacking uh, Gibeon and Gibeon says, come help us. You promised and so there's five kings aligned to attack Gibeon, and God promises uh, Joshua, he says, I will be with you, and I will give them into your hand. And then it says, Joshua marches all night to engage them in the morning. And I think a good takeaway from that is that do not think that God will use anything other than our best efforts. Don't presume that. And uh, Joshua had a promise of victory, and he still marched all night. And we need to God give, we have these promises, but we need to give God our best efforts, just like Joshua did. Very good. Very good. I had like 10 other slides. I actually had a slide about Caleb, because you ever think about Caleb? It kind of looks like he got passed over. <laughs> I mean, we could have been reading the book of Caleb. I mean, Caleb could have been the, the guy that Moses passed the... I mean, I'm sure he had a significant leadership role. We just don't know about it. But you just wonder what happened with Caleb. So I love the book of Joshua because I get a lot of life lessons from it. Um, so I want to make three points real quick. There's a contrast between Rahab and Achan and Rahab, prostitute, fear of the Lord, saved her and her household. Achan, lack of the fear of the Lord. If you remember reading the whole story, Achan and his entire family were taken out and stoned to death. The entire family, kids, everything else. Big, big lesson here is the fear of the Lord, how powerful that is. Second point is Rahab, we, when we read the story of Rahab, she already had foreknowledge that the Israelites were coming. The land was, they were doomed. She knew impending doom is upon them. So I believe she was looking for an opportunity. How can she save herself and her household? Because if we go back and read carefully, she's the one who proposed the arrangement with the two spies. Hey, look, save me, save our household. She's the one proposed it. She already thought about that. So the point that I get from this is that we should never underestimate the power of our prayers and standing in the gap, intercessory prayers for others, our family, our household, our friends, our city, our state, our country. Because this one woman, prostitute, was able to save her entire family and household. And a third point I want to make real quick is on the long day of Joshua. What I love about this is that there's no precedence for this whatsoever. Like, how did he even conceive the idea of asking God to stop the sun and the moon? And it, like, there's no precedence for it, but God answered it. And what I love about this is that when God gives you direction, he will answer your craziest prayers to get you through that point. So don't underestimate the power of your prayers and as crazy as they are. Because if God says, go there, go there. And if you need to ask him for the craziest, most impossible prayers... Think of long day of Joshua. Very good. Very good. All right. One or two more. I think it's really telling that, that we brought up Caleb because he was 85 years old and he was a, a solid man of God and he wanted to take on the giants. And, you know, this past week I was reading Psalm 71 and it made me think about the guys here. 
And in, in, uh, in Psalm 71, uh, verse 18, so even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. And I just think about all the faithful guys here in their 80s and 90s. I mean, you don't see that anywhere. It's just so inspiring and so encouraging to see these men live their lives of faith and still be active and serving the Lord and praying and, and meditating on the word coming and encouraging us younger guys. You know, I'm young, I'm almost 70, but, you know, younger guys, right? And, and and to see that you don't see that anywhere and i just think that's wonderful and I, I i greatly appreciate all the old folks here i consider myself one of them but i greatly appreciate all the old folks here man hey, amen i love that we have one more george when they made the oaths wasn't it in the uh, when they were writing the law weren't you bound didn't it say if you're going to make an oath you're bound by it? so were they allowed to break an oath if it was in deceivement or were they always going to be bound by it that's a, that's a good question. I'm not sure. Larry, would you mind praying us out? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this study. We thank you for every man here and their contributions, just not only during the week, but during the study. Dear Lord, that the example of Joshua would be one that would help us in our battles and our struggles through our life to truly be men of God who follow you and help everyone here, Lord, with all this going on. We pray for the family that their house burnt down and for all the other unspoken requests. We thank you for this study. We thank you for this, uh, the teachers, and we thank you for your son who died for our sins. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Judges next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode and remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.